through Acts chapter 12. We're picking up after, um, obviously, last week being Easter. We've got um, two weeks where I know you forgot everything I told you, and that's unfortunate. And uh, so what I'm going to do to jog your memory while you're opening there is, uh, is try to recap for you the first part of this, uh, this chapter, um, which has to do with during this transition time uh, in the church where things are moving from Jerusalem to Antioch and really kind of dispersing out. There's not like a central location uh, in Jerusalem anymore. And it's also definitively moved from a particularly Jewish sect of uh, religion to to Gentiles, which means it's kind of worldwide now. And so uh, in in Acts chapter 12, um, I'm just going to, as brief as I can, try to uh, jog your memory about what happened. So it starts out that at the same time that this revival is happening in Antioch and Barnabas went to go get Paul and they teach there for a year or several years. And, um, and so what happens is we find out that Herod the king had laid violent hands on some in the church. And so he had martyred James and he had captured Peter and he put him in prison and he intended to kill him after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But what we know is that an angel comes in while Peter is uh, in prison, and he frees him. He strikes him on the side. He wakes him up. His chains fall off. He gets through 16 soldiers, makes it out through the iron gate, and he finds himself in the city. And which point he goes to the place where they've been praying for Peter's release. And he stands at the gate, and lo and behold, he's knocking and calling out, if you will. And a servant girl comes, and she recognizes Peter's voice, but she doesn't let him in. She goes back and tells the prayer group, Peter's been released. They don't believe her. You're mad. And then we find out that eventually it is Peter. Aha, our prayers have been answered. Peter relays all of this information, his testimony, if you will, about being released from prison to He says, tell James and the brothers, and then it says he went on from there. And that's the last we're going to see of Peter until uh, Acts 15, I believe. And the key part of this was that we find out that the church is praying earnestly for not just Peter, but also for James. And this becomes important. And the idea of earnestly, I'm just jogging your memory about what we talked about. Praying earnestly does not have to do necessarily with praying continually in the sense where you don't stop praying ever. It carries with the sense of it as as like stretching, reaching out for something. This was that Greek word, actenos, which means to stretch to like furthest capacity to reach out towards something. But it's an empty-handed reaching. It's not grasping something that you want to lay hold of. It's grasping open-handedly, hoping that God will fill your hand with exactly what you need, and he does. And so that's what's happened through the first um, uh, several verses um, of this chapter. And so we're going to kind of pick it up right after that. Uh, but before we do that, I, I need to sort of rewind just a bit to pick up because what we're going to do and what's happening in Acts 12 is we have a series of two things that happen, two elements that occur within this story, within this narrative, and it's meant to give us a comparison. And I'll have a list for you at the end. But to make this comparison proper, we have to start at the beginning of the chapter. And so we, we sort of look at this and we see that James was killed, but Peter is released. And so we look at this and we say, well, did, did Peter win the blessing lottery, right? Like he, he, he got released and, uh, and, and James dies. And so like, did James lose in this situation? So you guys know what the, uh, the odds of winning the Powerball are? Just take a wild guess. 10 million's way low. Yep, that's real close. Joe said 200 millions. The odds of winning the lottery are Powerball are one and 292 
1,201,338. And I think they're being nice there. It's going to vary depending on how many people buy into the Powerball at that point, right? And so that's probably just based on the number combinations, et cetera, right? And so then do you know what the odds of being struck by lightning are? Much, much better. You're, you're way more likely to get struck by lightning than you are to win the Powerball. One in 15,300, which actually isn't that high, so I'm a little more afraid of thunderstorms, right? So the odds of being struck by lightning are, are much better than they are winning Powerball. And we look at what happens to, um, to Peter, and we're like, did he, win the, did he win the blessing lottery? Because look at this. Peter doesn't just get released from jail once. He got released from jail twice. And so if you think about what does it take to get struck by lightning twice, that skews those odds a lot, a lot higher than they, they would have been. And so we tend to look at this situation and we say something like this. God saved Peter, but he didn't save James. God saved Peter, but he didn't save James. And that's a problem because he saved both of them. And this is a mistake, right? Salvation and God's promises are talking about uh, uh, life, but are they speaking of physical life? Are they speaking of spiritual life? Well, you go, well, obviously they're speaking of spiritual life, but why would we say something like, well, God saved Peter, but he didn't save James? So I want you to consider for a minute the paradox of Jesus' promises about safety or about life or about things in the world, okay? So in Luke chapter um, 21, Jesus is speaking, and he says this. You will be, he's talking to the disciples, and he says, I'm sending you out, and and all these bad things are going to happen. And the list of things that are going to happen actually starts even earlier than this. But this is just the meat of it. So in verse 16, he says, you will be delivered up, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. He says they're going to kill some of you, right? And then he says, and you'll be hated for all by, for, for my namesake. But then he follows that in verse 18 by saying, but not a hair of your head will perish. So I just want you to think about the paradox of him saying, everyone's going to hate you. People are going to betray you. Some of you are even going to die. But don't worry, you're not going to be harmed, okay? That's a paradox. Because you're saying, well, then in what context can I not be harmed? In what context is my hair preserved? Well, he goes on and finishes this out by saying, by endurance, you will gain your lives. So Jesus promises that not a hair of their head would perish right after promising that some of them would die. And then he says, by extension on that, the resolution of this is so that by faithful endurance, you will gain life. And so faithful endurance as a theory is free. It's, it's easy. Faithful endurance as a metaphor, as something that we're supposed to know, is, is fine. We, we have no problems with that. It's when the proverbial rubber meets the road, and it means something in our lives that some of that clarity and resoluteness begins to lose its effectiveness. What Jesus means is faithfulness in life means that our lives are merely a tool for God. Our physical lives, our physical being is merely a tool of service to God. Our lives are a means, not an end. And we look at our lives as the ultimate thing. So that the preservation of, not, of a hair of our head, we think, well, that must mean, you know, long life or something bad won't happen to me. But Jesus clearly doesn't mean that. He means even if bad things happen to you, what truly matters will be preserved, that you won't have lost anything of true substance. And this is a fundamental truth that cannot be corrected on the back end. And what I mean by that is if you don't embrace this up front, you'll never get it on the back end. And then everything that Jesus promises misses its mark. Because you're constantly trying to make it apply to something that it doesn't apply to. The idea that what really matters to us is the preservation of our physical lives or our financial lives or some kind of otherwise material possessions, all other Christian calls to faithfulness will fail. 
They become simple like rah-rah verses, but they don't actually have any substance. Like when Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, don't fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy the soul and body in hell. And if that doesn't mean actually fearing those who can kill or don't, not fearing those who can kill the body and that having something to do in our lives and actually not fearing those things, then it just becomes a metaphor for bucking up and doing good. But just really what he means is that we should just adhere to right doctrine. But if somebody really threatens our lives, that we shouldn't be willing to give that up. If somebody really threatens who we are, really comes against um, our, our means of survival, that we shouldn't be willing to lay down our lives. And that's not, that's not a biblical way of thinking. The biblical way of thinking is to see that Peter and James and us, by extension, share the same fate and they're called to the same standard that we are, faithfulness even to death. Faithfulness even to death. And that means physical death. Why? Because to the one that overcomes, and when, whenever that phrase is used in Scripture throughout, it means the one who overcomes by holding fast to Christ over and above all things, the one who is faithful to Christ before men is given life. Because the rest of that Matthew 10, 28 verse says, he who denies me before men, I'll deny before the Father in heaven. And that means something like, he who lives his life in a way before men that denies that I am the true source, that I'm the one they're being faithful to, I will deny before my Father and will not give him eternal life. And this is an important foundational stake that we need to make now so that the rest of this call to faithfulness makes sense throughout the rest of this passage. So let's pray and then we'll go to Scripture. Father, I pray this morning that your call to faithfulness to us would resound in our hearts, that you would give us courage, fill us with your Spirit, that we would fight for you in a world where it seems we're constantly overcome by powers that are greater than us. And we feel that we don't have a chance, we don't stand a chance, but it's by trusting in you and knowing our powerlessness in these things that we find victory. So God, I pray that I would be out of the way, that it would not be my words this morning, but yours. Father, that I ask for, for me and for all of us that you would give us what we cannot give ourselves, which is a heart that's spiritual, and not stony, that can receive your truth and ears that are open to hear your voice, eyes to behold what is true in the midst of the Father. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the idea this morning is there's, there's I said this at the end of the last Acts 12, there's, there's two competing arms, there's two competing voices in this chapter. There's two things, we get two things, we get two tracks, and by the end of it, we're supposed to compare these things, and there's a struggle of two powers, and it's going to ask, which of these will you align with? So the title of this morning's sermon is Power's Struggle. Power, politics, persecution, please, and peace. Are you ready? Okay, you've had plenty of time to turn there, so if not, I'm sorry. All right, here we go, picking up in verse 18. After Peter has gone on his way, it says, Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea, and he spent some time there, that he being Herod. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace. 
because their country depended on the king's country for food. And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes. He took a seat upon the throne, and he delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms, and he breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. All right. Sort of a pick-me-up there, right? Okay. So let me, uh, let me first start where we need to start, which is the, the main character now has shifted from, we, we, we kind of went along Peter's route. We, we kind of saw what happened with Peter and, and Peter's source of power and the church and all of that. But now we're, we're focusing on Herod and, and the question about who, who is Herod. And Herod, if you're not paying close attention, has seemed like he's existed since the beginning of the New Testament, right? And that's because this isn't the same Herod that's mentioned in the beginning of the New Testament. So real quick, I need to talk to you about who the Herods are, okay? The Herods are a political family. Maybe you could think of them as something like the Kennedys or the Bushes or the royal family, but that's a little further distant to us. But the Herods are a ruling family in uh, the Holy Land, and so... um, this, uh, this, this character that we see now is, is Herod Agrippa, and he's a diplomat. He's got a sordid tale that I'd love to tell, but I don't have time this morning. But what you need to know is the first Herod that we're introduced to when Jesus is going to be born is Herod the Great. And Herod the Great was um, king, and remember the wise men come to him, and they say, we're searching for the king that was foretold, and he then decides that he's going to kill all of the babies, uh, and, and that's that's the first Herod that we meet. That's Herod the Great. He was a great guy. He, for reasons for political alliances, he had 10 different marriages, and uh, he knew that he wasn't well-liked, and so that he ordered uh, that prominent Jewish citizens be captured so that on his death, they would kill those Jewish citizens so that there would be mourning at his death. Sounds like a great guy, right? Okay, that's Grandpa Herod. Now, there's a twisting tale of a couple of others, but we also meet another Herod who... Um, is the Herod that Jesus has tried before, okay? And this Herod is the one who took his brother's wife, and that's the one who cuts off John, ba- John the Baptist's head, okay? That's, that's a different Herod. That's Herod the Tetrarch. And then we're now here to Herod Agrippa, all right? So Herod Agrippa is a diplomat, and he's a politician. He grew up in Rome, and he knows how to play the game. He's loyal to Roman ideas. He's loyal to Rome's uh, ruling power, and he's fine with that, but he's ruling over a Jewish people. And so he's found a way to straddle the defense is to be considered a law-abiding Jew. And when I say law, I mean Torah, right? So the people considered him as a Jew, but he's really not a Jew, okay? He, he does enough to... Uh, ingratiate himself to the people, okay? And so what we see in the text now is that Herod is exerting political power, right? Political pressure here on the church. And he's doing it because it's pleasing the people, right? He kills James with the sword, and it says he saw that this pleased the people, so that's why he captured Peter. He said, you like that? Wait till I show you this. So he captures the number one guy. And so he's doing this to further um, please the people. And so in this text, he's exerting this, this power, and we think, well, he's, uh, he's not a good guy. Why, does, why is he in power over God's people? Well, in Romans 13, we find out that there is no authority or power except for what God has put in place. Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. How much authority is there outside of God? None. There's no authority except for, from God. And those that exist have been what? instituted by God, okay? Therefore, whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed, 
And those who resist will incur judgment. He says, if you don't want to fear, fear the authorities, then don't do what's wrong. He says, they have a purpose. They're in place for a reason. In verse 4 of Romans 13, he says, for that one that God has appointed, he is God's servant for your good. That's an important qualification. All authorities from God, there is no authority outside of God. Whatever God has instituted, it's for a purpose. And whatever authority has been given, it's for that person to be a servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the what? Sword in vain. That's the idea of being able to enforce what's right and wrong, for he is a servant of God. I'm underlining that several times. An avenger who carries out God's wrath. Herod is definitively not serving God's purposes in this text, right? He's not serving God. He's self-serving. He's prideful. God has bestowed or granted him a certain amount of authority, which is entrusted to those who he's going to call his servants, right? And this is an important idea because it means that they're going to be called to account. If God's given you something, you are now a manager. You're a steward of it. He's given you life. What are you doing with it, right? All, not all, many of Jesus' parables talks about what people do with the things that God has entrusted them with or what managers or bosses or kings have entrusted them with. They're going to be called to account. So there's an accounting to God, but it it can be abused and it can be perverted, right? There's, and and many of the parables include these elements. God entrusts people with something and they, they, they mismanage it. They don't treat it right. They don't care about it. They, they abuse it, right? And so this is no different. Political authority is no different than any other thing that God entrusts people with. Agrippa, excuse me, Agrippa, Herod Agrippa is a consummate politician, he has full Roman allegiance. He's a Jewish loyalty through populism. And what we see is that coming out in the text is that he decides not to kill Peter until when? Until after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He, he doesn't really care that there shouldn't be uh, a killing there. He's just doing that to appease the Jews. And he, he, we see that um, he's becoming whatever he needs to be for the favor of the masses of those he's over. He becomes whatever he needs to be. That's called populism, Right? And so political power is often just wielding the promise of fulfilling men's desires over and against themselves. Political power is wielding men's desires as authority against themselves. So whatever desire that might be, approval, safety, success, some kind of uh, promise that's given, and he's wielding that over and against them. And in this case, um, we, we see that it's being perverted. So in Psalm, uh, Psalm 2, common, common psalm, uh, very often repeated, it asks this question, why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth, they set themselves up as ruler and they take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointing, anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds and cast away their cords from us. Okay, the idea is this. Rulers, man, rulers in the world, they, they get together and they don't like the restrictions of serving God as true king. And so they hatch and devise plots to... to ingratiate themselves and get power for themselves. And what we see here is that Herod is that kind of God. He's, he's, that, kind of, me, he's that kind of God. And we see here, what it says is that he stretched out his hand to do violence to the church. Herod is stretching out his hand of power to demonstrate that he's in charge, that he's the guy that's in charge. If we look at what's happening politically here, I, I'm going to keep referring politically. This isn't a political sermon, but it is. Okay? And you'll see why in just a minute. Capital punishment was not something the Jews had the right to do at this time. Capital punishment had been taken away from them. They weren't allowed to do it. That's the whole thing with Jesus being tried and taken to the Roman authorities. They wanted him 
they wanted the, the Roman authorities to crucify Jesus because they couldn't carry it out on their own. The only exception to this was, was something uh, that had to do potentially with only religious laws. And so James is killed by the sword. This execution was permitted on Jewish grounds for a, a, uh, a spiritual infraction, a religious infraction, which is, in this case, idolatry. So he probably had falsely charged James with idolatry. And if you think about what that means in the context of these Jews not liking this sect called the Way. And here they are using the political means to behead, to behead James, which is the power of the sword that's entrusted to Herod. So Herod killed James, and he gained favor, and he means to use this to gain further favor against Peter. And he's using religious fervor, okay? So now we have the problem of religious fervor married with political power, and that's a dangerous cocktail, okay? Religion is dangerous in the hands of government. And we think if, if the government was r- religious in, in, our ver- in our version of religion, that would be a good thing because it seems they're so anti-religious to our particular context. But if you just insert a different religion into the government and ask, do I want that enforced? You'd say, no, I- I'd rather have a separation of church and state, right? Now, here's the idea. We, we talked about this before. There's a separation of authority levels. God has ordained certain spheres where there's authority, and it's meant for a specific purpose, but religion is dangerous in the hands of the state, where they either are beholden to religion, they're using religion, or they're oppressing religion. Because all, all worldviews, whether they claim to be religious or not, are inherently spiritual. Okay? When, when you look at the world, and you think everything that's wrong with the world, and you categorize it in a political sphere, and you say, well, it's this particular political view that is the problem, you've, you've, you, you think that that is secular, but it's not secular. It is a, it's a spiritual worldview. It's a religious kind of faith towards a particular system. All worldviews are inherently spiritual in nature. We, we uh, talked about in the primer that idea that there's a spiritual world that's going on sort of beyond our perception, behind the veil. In Ephesians 6, which we just walked through in the Bible study, about the armor of God, talks about this reality. Ephesians 6.12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over the present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And you think, I'm wrestling against Biden, and you're not. You're you're wrestling against a worldview that is inherently spiritual, or I should say spiritual in origin. So when you hear spiritual, don't think godly, think it's demonic in that sense. And now that gives a little more, even better context to some of the things that you look at and say, what's wrong in the world? And then you can say, it's not a political idea. It's, it's actually a demonic argument. It's a demonic worldview that's inspiring these things. So he goes through in Ephesians 6 the, the fact that we're supposed to equip ourselves and engage in this battle. So after he runs down this armor that we're equipped with, here's the resolution on it. Pray, 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 pray. He says four times pray, and then he says that I would have courage to speak the gospel in the word of God which is the sword of the Spirit, which is the truth, okay? So we have a way to engage in this. And so we sometimes mistake that we're called to be a peaceable people. That means we're not quarrelsome. We don't go out looking for a fight, but we mistake peaceable for passive. You mistake peaceable for passive, or we mistake humility with weakness, or we mistake preaching a word of power with being in power and speaking a word, Now, those are all nuanced differences, but they're all very big, important differences. Christian courage and boldness is not the result of powerful positions. It's it's actually the exact inverse of that. We we don't 
get into powerful positions so that we can speak words to people. We get in low positions and speak words of power to people who think they are powerful. So the question remains, where do you really believe the power is? Do kings, governors, laws, media, money, means, or influence, knowledge, do all of these have power? Or is there something else that's really the power of the world? These things all have all the power only if you define power merely as what can man amass as power? What can man affect as power? God always, always, without exception, except for Jesus, uses what is weak and despised and lowly and unexpected to show His power. 1 Corinthians 1, 27. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. All of the things that you think are power, all the things that you think are important, God's bringing those to nothing to prove that He's God and you're not or man is not, so that no human being can boast in God's presence. The church has forgotten that our, our ways are foolishness to the world. And to the eyes of those looking on to the world, what we see as powerful is weakness. And we get that flipped on its head and we're so desperate for the approval of other people, we think we need to compromise. We've got to find a way so that we can straddle the fence so that the government will be okay with what we think. That's a dangerous position. It is the goal of Satan. Part of his schemes and plans is to find you in discouragement. Because... You will be discouraged if you embrace the mentality that that's what power looks like. Power looks like political power. Power looks like wealth. Power looks like knowledge. Power looks like X, Y, and Z. You will be discouraged about trusting in God if you believe that lie. And Satan's already won because you won't believe what truly is powerful is weakness. What truly is powerful is embracing God's Word. And it causes us to question and trust God's word, his goodness, and his plan, and his power. Look what's happened here. It says that, uh, that Herod had called, after, after Peter had been uh, released, it says he called and he examined these sentries to put them to death. The, the rule was, if the prisoner escaped on your watch, you received the penalty that was going to be theirs. And so what's happened is, Herod, in a display of his power and great pride, he didn't just capture Peter at night and uh, say, you know, we'll try him and figure out what's going to happen. He, he captured him. He made a big deal about guarding him with 16 soldiers, okay? Four, four squads of four. He put all these chains on him. He's got this, uh, this expectation with the people that Peter's going to be put to death. Peter says that later. Now I know that God has saved me from all that was expected. So he's, he's really drummed up the idea that this is going to be carried out. And what he's done is he's set the stage for God to show who's really in charge. And now he's going to eat his words. Whenever man believes that he's in power and he reaches out his hand to show how powerful he is, he demonstrates that he's really most vulnerable. Okay? The further out on a limb that someone goes to demonstrate the, the power, the higher up they climb, the further out they go, the, the further the fall is going to be. They are stretching to grasp at worldly power, while the church is stretching up towards God to reach towards true power. While thinking they might be fortifying their positions to show how great they are, they're really isolating themselves. It, 
in, uh, in Obadiah, which is this obscure, very short prophet book in the Old Testament, it's speaking about the people of Edom, okay? And uh, I have to insert this here because there's no better place to insert it. So I introduce you to the Herods, but the important part about the beginning of the Herod line is that, put on your spelunking gear, we're going to just go, we're going to go Old Testament real quick, okay? Herod is a descendant of the Edomites, okay? Now, the Edomites are the people of Esau. Well, who's Esau? Esau, way back in Genesis, is the twin brother of Jacob. So when uh, Rebecca's pregnant, there's a prophecy that says there are two nations in your belly, and they're going to be at war. And it says the, uh, uh, the older will be strong, but the, the older will serve the younger, right? And that becomes the child of promise. And, and from these two descendants, remember Esau... Um, was a man of the, of the world. He was like robust and strong. He liked to eat. But he also, his appetite was also indicative of his personality, of who he actually was as a person. He, he only cared about um, the things of the world. That was what his stomach wanted. And so he sells his birthright to his brother for a bowl of stew. Okay? And this is the beginning of his demise. And so if you think about that in the context of, of what's happening here, Esau had an appetite for the world, and uh, he goes on after they split ways, and uh, Jacob does some not nice things and, and uh, also steals the blessing, but that's neither here nor there because they, they go their separate ways. The prophecy becomes true that the older will serve the younger, but Esau settles a land called Edom. And uh, Moses, uh, Moses, yeah, Moses, spends a chapter in Genesis talking about the descendants of Esau. And he, he's very careful to do this. Why? Because these end up being the perpetual enemy of God's people, Amalek and the Canaanites, because he intermarried with these other people. Well, why is that important? Because Herod, now who's the ruler, is an, is an Edomite, and he is still perpetually at war with, with God's people. Now, back to Obadiah. That was, I know, a rabbit trail, but it'll come back around, I promise. In Obadiah, Obadiah says this about Edom, about the people there. They say this, who will bring me down to the ground? They, they had this land. They thought they were fortified. They thought they were invincible, more or less. They asked, who will bring me down to the ground? And Obadiah chapter 1, verse 4 says, no matter, how, um, no matter how high from there, I will bring you down. That's God's word of judgment against them. Even though you think you sit in this place of honor and power and un untouchability, God will bring you down from that place. No matter how high and mighty anyone considers themselves to be, God will bring them down from there. It doesn't matter how great the platform is or how high somebody is. Satan was cast out of the highest place he could be, the throne room of heaven, and he falls all the way down like lightning. Pharaoh in Exodus, we find out that he, he also is somebody that is believing in his own power, that he's going to be able to thwart God's plans. In Exodus chapter 9, though, this is God speaking to Pharaoh. He says, For by this time I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague to wipe you off of the earth. I could have done that, Pharaoh. You, you were in charge of a lot of things. I could have already wiped you off the earth. He says, but in verse 16, but I have raised you up. I have raised you up. Romans 13, there is no authority but what God has granted. I have raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power to you, that my name might be proclaimed in all 
the earth. That is God's purposes in raising up Pharaoh and giving him power. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage? Why do they plot against the Lord in vain? Psalm 2, 4, he says that he who sits in the heaven laughs. He laughs at their plotting and their plans about how they're going to be kings and, and, and win all these battles. The Lord holds them in derision, and he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, a holy hill. He's referring to his own son, the anointed king. So it says that he had to put his own soldiers to death. That Herod, thinking he's going to stretch out his mighty hand and show how powerful he is, ends up eating crow. He's got to kill his own soldiers. He doesn't know where Peter is, so it says he he goes away for a while. He's going to go to Caesarea. But he's got another problem here. The people of Tyre and Sidon, they're upset. It says, they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. Okay? So, Remember, politics is, is the art of wielding man's desires essentially against themselves, right? As authority over themselves. Approval, safety, and in this case, food. Tyre and Sidon have no love for Herod. What they do love is food, right? And so it, decide, it says that they coalesce. They come together. They, they don't really want to come, but they do. It says they come in one accord and they ask for peace. The text says that they argued angrily. And they're, now they're asking for peace. They don't like Herod. They like food. And this demonstrates the vulnerability, not just of Herod's power, but empowering Herod over the people. He's not serving God. He's a tyrant. So consider... (laughs) Consider this irony, that um, this is all happening, we're told, around the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was to commemorate God's uh, uh, releasing people from slavery to a tyrant. And their humility in going out and being sinless. And what these, um, what's happening here is that Herod's really turned that on its head and he's inverting all of this that God wanted for his people. And so they come and they're asking for peace, which is essentially this is a compromise. And it says they came asking for peace with one accord. They're unified in doing something. And this is, seems to be a passing statement, but I think it's an essential idea for us in our context. The power, the power of collective desire will overwhelm the individual commitment to faithfulness, okay? When, when the masses decide to do something, it's really, it becomes nearly impossible to hold on to faithfulness individually. The majority of people will go a certain direction, and it's usually the, the, the path of least resistance, right? And so here, they just, they just want peace, they just want food, and so they're coming and they're appealing to Herod. If we if we as a church are prone to this same thing, we're, we're prone to this because we love something more than God. If we're afraid of losing something more than we're afraid of being unfaithful to God, we are bound to compromise. We're bound to ask for peace on any terms. Okay, I'll, I'll give you peace. Just offer a pinch of incense. Caesar's Lord. Something like that. Just a token. It doesn't really mean anything. And you will compromise because the power of the world is only as powerful as it has sway in your own life. And your commitment to that is going to determine whether or not you're somebody who's faithful or somebody who will compromise. We read it in John 6 that Jesus said, don't labor for the food that perishes. 
And Jesus said, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word which comes from the Father. And these people here are now going to declare that we don't live by any words. We, we live by bread alone who comes from the, the mouth and the hand of, of Herod. It's God who provides these things. Jesus had said that. It wasn't Moses. It's the Lord that provides bread in Numbers when the Israelites are in the, the wilderness and they were upset about the provision of food. And God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to feed you guys so much quail, so much food, you're going to be sick of it. And Moses is like, are you really going to do that? Like, how can you do that? And the Lord said to Moses, is the Lord's hand too short? Do you, do you think it's impossible for me to do this? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. It says that on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes. He set his seat upon the throne, and he delivered to them an oration. That's a, just a speech, right? And, a, and the people were shouting, the voice of God and not of a man. Okay? This is the declaration, right? So he ascends the throne. Here he is, arrayed in all of his royal splendor here. It says, this is a historical um, record that in the spring of 44, Herod Agrippa hosted a series of games at Caesarea, which is this uh, a hippodrome, which is uh, basically a big coliseum where they have chariot races and, and games. Um, it still stands to this day. You can go down and see this, this in existence. It's an incredible structure. But here he is, and it, this, this thing is full. He's, he's holding these games in honor of the Emperor Claudius, an, another salute to the fact that he's really, he's really allegiant to Rome, though the people regard him as a God-fearing Jew. He's arrayed in all of his glory here, we're told, and Josephus records that what he had had was some robes that were made with threaded silver, okay? So that when he walked out in the sunlight, it looked like he was gleaming with shining forth rays. So here, just get the picture of what's happening here. A man goes out arrayed in all of his royal splendor, and it says that he takes his seat, and the word there is the judgment seat. He sits upon his throne, the seat of judgment. And then he begins to speak words, and what do the people call back to him? The words of God and not of a man. They give him false worship. They give Herod what Satan desires, which is worship that belongs only to God. They do this to get what they desire. And that's, that's the essence of idolatry. That's the essence of all false worship. To get what you desire, you give what you should not give. What belongs to no one other than God, you give it to somebody else. There's, a, a, there's an interesting undertone to this, too, that Satan is called the, 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 the shining one, the, the morning star. He was the, the, the bright, shining glory, and he's arrayed in his royal things, and he wanted what only belonged to God. And when he went to take it for himself, he wanted the worship of others, and then he's cast down. Here's the result of what Herod had done in the same way. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms, and he breathed his last. The interesting thing about that last statement, it's an inversion of the way things normally go. It's normally he breathed his last, and then he was eaten by worms. So get, get the picture here. Uh, Josephus records Agrippa's death came five days after this day where he delivered this oration. He struck down with... Uh, an intestinal disease of worms. For five days, he's in pain, and then he dies. He breathed his last. He gave back to God what was God's. Agrippa is a representative 
of a godless, worldly, appetited steward of God's authority. He's in, he, he falls from as high as he could go to as low as he could go. He reveled in Roman, in Roman authority that was given him. He desired Jewish popularity, but he perished with no glory at all, precisely because he failed to give God glory. We're told the reason why this happened, and we're also told that it was at the hands of an angel. An angel struck him and gave him these intestinal worms. The single central purpose in the first statement of the Westminster Confession is the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's your sole purpose in the world, is to give God what is appropriately His, to reflect back to Him the glory that He richly deserves. The resolution on this Psalm 2 that I've been walking us through, right? Why do the nations rage? Why do they plot in vain? The Lord sits in heaven and He laughs at that plotting. In Psalm 2, and then in verse 10, it says, Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. You should serve with the consciousness that you serve the Lord. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry. That Son is the anointed one, because it said earlier that it's my Son, this day I have begotten you. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and as you perish, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in Him. Herod's pride showed him to be the king and provider of food to the one declared of having um, the voice of God and not of man. He went from that to being worm food. Satan fell from heavenly throne room to eating dust. There's one other interesting overlay here. King Nebuchadnezzar had nearly the same thing happen to him. In the book of Daniel, he looks upon all of his kingdom and he says, look what my hands have done. Look how great I am. It says that he went mad for a season. And after he had gone mad, it says he came back to his, sen his senses and he declares this in verse 36 of Daniel chapter 4. At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty, my splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords, they sought me. I was established in my kingdom, and still my, more greatness was added to me. He says, all that I had, I got more, but that's not the important thing. In verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. Why? For all his works are right, all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Those who walk in pride... He is able to humble. It's not able. Nobody is above God's power. Nobody's above God's word. And that's the final word there in verse 24 of our chapter today. But the word of God increased and multiplied. That's the contrast. The word of God increased and multiplied. Contrary to the prideful declarations of man, God's word is the first and the last. It precedes everything and it stands beyond whenever everything else fails. Isaiah 40, grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Isaiah 55, 11, so my word that proceeds from my mouth will not return to me empty. It accomplishes all that I please and it will prosper where I send it. The moral of the story is not that bad people get their just desserts. We'd like that to be true, right? We'd like that to be immediately true that evil people are struck down Isaiah 14, 26. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth. Okay? This is the purpose for the whole earth 
that the hand of God is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed whatever it is, who can annul it? His hand is stretched out. Who can turn it back? That is this. God's hand is stretched out, and it doesn't matter whatever other hands of power might be stretched out. Nobody can thwart God's arm, nor can they thwart His word. It stands forever. Acts 12 is a chapter with a series of contrasts, a bunch of things that happen twice, things that show up more than once, and we're meant to look at these contrasts, these two elements, and say, what was the difference in these two things? Here's some of them. We have two apostles. One is preserved and one is martyred. But they share the same faith. They share the same salvation. They share the same faithfulness. There's two prayers that happen. We see the result of one being that Peter is freed from prison. There's two gates that are come to. The one that Peter is, opens up automatically and the one that Peter's standing outside of. And what is the designation there? There's two expectations of what's going to happen. The expectation that the people had of Peter being killed and the expectation that the church had of Peter being released. There's two judgments that happen. There's the judgment that Peter was supposed to have that ends up being executed on his own soldiers. There's two deaths that happen. There's James's death and the King Herod's death. There's two voices that are recognized. The first one is Peter's at the gate. The second one is the people declaring the voice of God and not of man. There's two pleas that happen. There's two angels that show up. The first one strikes Peter on the side. The second Peter strikes Herod on the side. It's the exact same word. Two strikes, two angels, but two different outcomes. There's two arms in this. The first is that Herod stretched out his arm. But we see that God stretches out his arm, and there's two words, and which one will abide and which one is powerful. The warning throughout this passage is about the prideful rebellion of man. A prideful rebellion of man represented in Herod, who imposes persecution against God's people, carrying on the traits of his people, the Edomites. And we're supposed to observe that there's a great chasm then between worldly power and security and God's power. God's word and man's word. God's ability and man's ability. And the question to us then is this, will the church, the people who profess faith in God and God's power and God's ways and God's hand, trust in that or will they reach out and compromise? Will they seek uh, 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 an apparent or expedient power? Will they grasp at a lesser power and attempt to control what they aren't in control of? Or will they reach out in, towards the true power, right? And stretching out with an empty-handed and trusting to God for His plans, His power, His word, His purposes. And we are so prone to measuring and assessing and striving after what we think can be accomplished if we just had power. But by faith and humility and powerlessness, we actually find that's where the victory is. The church has an authority and a word and an arm that we're supposed to appeal to. So the church needs to hear this morning. If you're going to like look for just a very basic application, right? Stop looking to the government or politicians or worldly means to give you something that you do not have. Stop looking for power in unrighteous places and from unrighteous sources. The church is not bound to political alignments. We're not bound for permission or provision or protection or permission from 
authorities, from rulers. If you overlay this warning, it's not just Mitch, you know, wretched this thing out of its context. Because if you look at what the problem is throughout the book of Revelation, it's the idea of compromise. And it's, it's compromise with those that are in power who make it really hard to be faithful. And the promise over and over is being faithful is what helps you overcome, what makes you over, an overcomer, which gets you life. And we have this picture in, I think it's 13, see 13 or 14 Revelation, where we have the, the harlot riding the beast. And the beast is the governing authority. And he's the one making it difficult. And the harlot is this compromised uh, wife, uh, the church, the people of God who decide that it's better to entrust themselves to the apparent power and the apparent authority than it is to be faithful and be martyred to death. But Jesus' promise throughout is that he who endures even to death, I will give life. So the call here is really about faithfulness. It's really about your assessment of, of what power is. It's really about what you entrust yourself to and what you strive after and what you seek. So may that be a clarion call to not entrust ourselves to something that we think is maybe a better alternative, because that's what we often think of with government. Well, if it was just this way, that would be better. No, the government's not your provider. The government's not your salvation. The government's not your hero. And if the NSA is listening, we're going to preach God's word, and we're going to trust that. Father,